Um, so my name is Jonathan, if I haven't met you. Uh, I am the campus minister with uh, Reform University Fellowship with RUF. Um, if I haven't met you, I'd love to. It's, uh, I'd love to get to know you more. So um, some of you are wondering what you've just stumbled into. Uh, what is this weird group? What do they do? We're a Christian ministry on campus um, for, the, for the campus, which means we want to, uh, first of all, have fun like a picnic uh, that we just did. That was great fun. Um, so if you weren't there, keep hanging out with us. We'll do another picnic. I got wrecked by mosquitoes, but it was still worth it. Um, so, but you didn't even know that. Anyways, so we do fun things, uh, and then we also spend time throughout the, uh, throughout the week and throughout, uh, throughout the year, that kind of thing, studying scripture and asking, does the Christian faith have anything to say? Uh, I say this every week, but does it have anything to say about being a college student or in the college phase of life if you're not taking classes currently? And um, I think it does. It's a lot of diversity in this room. There's a lot of different perspectives. There's a lot of different ethnicities and languages represented. And so here we are as a bunch of very diverse people coming into a room and asking, does this one book meet all of the diversity of a college campus, which let's be honest, a college is probably one of the most diverse places in our world. Does this one thing have to say to all of the diversity? And so um, that's what we do throughout the week. That's what we do tonight. And uh, we ask questions of that. And uh, we just chip away at it. Look, you're all, some of you have questions about faith and spirituality. Some of you don't. But uh, I can tell you right now, like in the next 25 minutes that I'm here talking, I'm not going to be able to answer all of your questions. <laughs> We're just going to take a piece of it. Just like one little piece of a question that some of us have and go from there. And maybe that'll spur other questions and other questions. And so what we would hope is that we would just start to form a community of people who are asking questions and exploring Christianity and faith together. So tonight uh, we're going to continue with that. Um, if you like what we do, if you like this, then tell a friend. Invite somebody that might be interested or invite somebody who you think wouldn't be interested and say, hey, this is maybe good for you to broaden your horizons. If you don't like what we do, tell me. And I may say, too bad. But I may say, <laughs> I may say, let's work on it. Let's, let's, because we are by far not a perfect community and so we want to grow uh, through your criticism. So uh, tonight we're, we're going to continue with our study of the, the book of John, which is a gospel that uh, the apostle John wrote, who is one of Jesus' followers. And uh, we're going to start tonight <laughs> looking at one of the most unpopular doctrines in the Christian faith, uh, the doctrine of predestination. And so I can already tell that for some of you, alarm bells start going off and you're like, oh no, what have, we, what have I walked into? And some of you are like, what? Um, See, look, someone's already... Well, no, I'm kidding. Marina, you're fine. <laughs> um, no, so it's not a popular idea, but um, I think it's a biblical idea. So we're going to start there. And uh, some of this may be really hard for some of us to understand. That's okay. It's okay for you to be mad at this text. It's okay for you to be mad at me. But what I would ask is that you, rather than just get mad and never speak to anyone about it, engage me. Engage each other with it. Um, so that when you're frustrated, I mean, that's a civil thing to do. It's just like, this confused me and made me frustrated, and I need to talk to you about it, rather than, that dude pissed me off and I'm never going to talk to him again. That's a terrible way to do life, for starters. <laughs> but it's also a bad way to just interact with people. So, um, let's dig into this text. So if you have your little bulletin, um, look on the bulletin. I'm going to read this little piece of uh, scripture and we'll look at it. Uh, so this is Jesus speaking, and he's, uh, this is what he says. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, not lose, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about, about him, saying, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to, the, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. This is God's word. Would you please pray with me? Father, as we open your word tonight, it's, uh, it's an intimidating thing uh, that a very old book would dare to have something to say about our lives. Lord, we pray that as we look now at uh, hard topics and things that are confusing and possibly angering, that you would be with us. Uh, and that in all of it, you would make yourself seen and known and show us how much you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so John 6 is a, a very, very deep heavy chapter, and I could only break off a piece of it because I don't want you all to be here for three hours. You just came from lecture. So we're just looking at a small piece of it tonight, and it couches into, or it fits into a context in which Jesus has just miraculously fed 5,000 people. So there's this large group of people, and uh, they need food, and Jesus miraculously turns five loaves of uh, bread and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 people. Now, Suspend your disbelief if you're like, yeah, right. Come talk to me if you're like, yeah, right. Let's just say, assume for the sake of that the, the, the text says that this happens and that we can trust it. Let's just to start there. If you're like, uh-uh, then just pay attention and then come yell at me afterwards and we can talk about it. But the context here is that Jesus has just fed them and he says, I am the bread of life. Just like you ate physical bread, now I am the spiritual bread that you need. And he's using that sign of feeding 5,000 people to speak to a deeper reality, namely that he is the spiritual food that we and they need. And that, and that as we partake of Jesus in a spiritual sense, that is, as we believe in him, uh, we have life and we have, uh, we have eternal life through him. And so now Jesus is saying, okay, if that's the point, how does that actually work? How does that actually work? And so what I want us to do is actually work through this text sort of verse by verse and then we'll pull out at the end and try and draw some conclusions from it, all right? So hang with me. So look at verse 35 here. Let's just start at the very beginning. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So right there, he's laying down the principle. I am the spiritual sustenance that you need. Not in this physical sense, but the spiritual bread that you need. And so they would be like, mm, this is weird, but we'll hang with you. And so he says in verse 36, he, go, he goes on, he says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So here's Jesus. He just says this, and now, now he kind of throws a barb at them, right? He throws a barb at this crowd, and he's critiquing them, right? He's saying to them, you saw this miracle that I just did. You just saw me turn five loaves of bread into enough food to feed 5,000 people, and yet you're failing to grasp the deeper spiritual significance of it. You're not getting the point. The point of the miracle is that you see me and that you believe in who I am. 
that you see me and that you believe in who I am, and you're not getting that. You see my signs, and yet you're not believing, right? Well, then why? Why would they not believe? Why would they, in seeing this incredible thing that just happened, this, I mean, truly incredible, unbelievable thing, not believe? And this is where he starts to get into it. He says, why is that happening? Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He says, here's why you, O audience, Jewish people, are not getting what's happening. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And this is where we start to get into the hard stuff and the stuff that some of you are going to want to throw rocks at me for. Because we start to get behind the idea that God the Father, the one who sent Jesus, has a select number of people that he has chosen for the Son to save. Right? That there's this group of people that he says, these are the people who the Father has chosen to save, and that that, those are the, that, that that group the Father gave to the Son. And this is where we start to get to the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of predestination. That God has, and it's the idea that all over Scripture, not just here, all across Scripture, God has a select number of people that he says, I'm going to save these ones. I'm going to save these people that by, for his own glory, by his power, he will sing with me. Uh, he, will, he will save them. So hang with me and we'll dig into this more because remember, I just want to look at the text for now and then we'll go on and start to draw some conclusions from this. But what I want you to see is right there in the text, it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So he says, there is this idea of those whom the Father out of everyone, those of the Father that he has given to the Son who will come to him and be saved. Then look at verse 37. He softens it a little bit in the second half. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, this softens a little bit because of those elect, the ones chosen by God, it says they'll respond in faith. They're going to respond in a way that when they come to the Father, when they come to the Son, he's like, I'm never going to throw you away because I care for you. I've chosen you. I've made you my own. So I want, I would never reject you. That when they respond to Jesus in faith and belief, Jesus says, I'll never reject or toss that one away. Okay, stick with me. I promise y'all this is going to get someplace. Look in verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now that for is very important. That for is very important because it functions sort of like a because. Like a because statement. He says, this is why I came. For I came, out of, came down from heaven or because I came down out of heaven for this purpose. I came down from heaven. I'm God who became man, Jesus says. Not so that I could do my own thing. Not so that I could just flex and do powerful things all over the place. Do all these miracles. But I came to do, what does he say? The will of him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, I'm here for a very specific, unique purpose. I'm here on a mission from God the Father. I, God the Son, am here to save, to redeem those whom the Father has sent me. And look, he tells us more in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. That is, this is the will of the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that my purpose on earth is to redeem those whom the Father has given me. That's why I'm here. 
I'm here explicitly and only to save those that the Father has given me. And later on in John 17, just before Jesus is about to die, just before he's going to go to the cross, he says this to, he's praying to the Father. He says, I have shown your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So there he is saying, saying, I came for the explicit and unique special purpose to save those whom the Father has chosen, those whom the Father has chosen predestined, the will of the Father. So there it is right there, that God in eternity past has selected, elected, chosen a few, a some, whom he would give the Son to save. The Father gives the Son his specific number that the Son will save and redeem by his death on the cross. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to earth to save those whom the Father had chosen. Verse 39 goes more, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given. And that's interesting there because that nothing is an individual, not one thing, of all. So he says there's this, ele- there's this the one individual, not even one of all the people whom I've chosen, none of them will be lost. This means that those whom God has chosen will be saved. Individuals, people like you and me at New Mexico State in 2019, that none of us who have been called by God, not one of the elect, will fail to be saved. So let's press on to verse 40. He says, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. He continues and summarizes, Jesus will completely save both from present sin now and from future sin when he brings us into heaven, every single person who believe in him. Now, (laughs) there it is, right there in the text, the doctrine of predestination. And all of a sudden, people start bristling. Even back then, people hated this idea. (laughs) It's been an unpopular idea from their very beginning because look at verse 41. The Jews grumbled at him. Because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? It's it's amazing to me because they hate this idea of God choosing whom he will save as much as we do. (laughs) They hate this idea. They're like, who are you, Jesus, to speak on behalf of God? And we say the same thing where today we're like, whoa, 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 God, not cool. You can't do that. We hate this idea. This is just a terrible, terrible idea to us. They say, Jesus, who do you think you are? We know your dad. You're a hick from the sticks. You don't have any authority to speak with any sort of authority on what God is doing in eternity past. Don't you dare start to do this. Which is kind of what we do today when we start thinking about divine sovereignty. Who is God to tell me what's real and what I have to do? Who is God to speak with some sort of authority or on my life when I have the choice, I have the say. And what's amazing about this is that Scripture speaks with like amazing clarity even to our world today, that people, when they hear this idea, even 2,000 years ago, when it's coming from the mouths of Jesus Christ, they're like, nope, this is a terrible idea. How can you talk about God's eternal will with, all author- with any authority? When Jesus answers them, 
In verse 43, he says, Do not grumble among yourselves. And then he pours it on one more time. No one can come to to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. Jesus takes none of their criticism. He lays it on. Now, what does it mean when he says, no, sorry, this is what we mean when we say that faith is a gift from God. That word draws there. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That idea, that, that word is often used in the Greek to refer to, um, to, to a bucket, when you send a bucket down into a well and then you draw water up with it. That's the word that's used there. And the idea is that uh, it must be brought in, that the water doesn't just hop into a bucket. It has to be brought in. It has to be drawn up. He says, in the same way, the Father draws us to him. And this is not going to happen unless God works and moves in our hearts, in our lives, in a way that only God can do it. That God must, be, that God must bring us and draw us to himself, that we would never otherwise do it. The Bible says that even faith in Jesus is a gift from God and that who makes us alive. The Bible says over and over again that we are so spiritually numb, so spiritually, the word that the Bible uses is dead, that we wouldn't even turn to God if it was an option. That we are, Romans talks about us, Paul talks about us as hostile towards God in our natural state. And so the only way for us to be reconciled with God, to enjoy and be satisfied by Jesus, who is the bread of life, is for God to begin to work life in us in a way only he can do it. In a way that only he can do it. Earlier in John 3, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit must breathe new life into our spiritual deadness and revive us so that we can believe in Jesus. So what's the point in all of this? What's the point in all of this? The point in all of this is that, and this is what Jesus is saying here, and what John's trying to show us, is that God is the source and sovereign king in all of creation, including our salvation. So with that in mind, we've worked through this text I want, as closely as I can with the time I have. What are some conclusions we can draw from this? Okay. I think there's three major conclusions to be drawn. First is the one I just said, that God is totally sovereign in our salvation. God is totally sovereign in our salvation. Sovereign means that he's in control or that he works and does basically his own will, that he plans it, he finishes it. Another way of saying this is that we bring nothing into our salvation with the living God except our own sin. We bring nothing into our salvation except our own sin. That the Father plans our salvation. That the Son accomplishes our salvation. And that the Spirit applies or seals it. God, the three persons of God, are are the only ones who can work and move in a way that saves our hearts and saves our lives and brings us to eternal life. This is probably one of, the, one of the main points of Reformed theology. You know, some of y'all are wearing RUF shirts, Reformed University Fellowship. Kind of the main, one of the main points of Reformed theology, which is a, a, a tradition in, uh, in, in uh, theology, it says that uh, it looks honestly at what the Bible has to say about human sin and God's grace. And it basically says, we're really in sorry shape. Apart from God, we are spiritually dead. Apart from God, we want nothing to do with God. And God is an awesome, saving, loving Father. 
who does not leave us in that state, but he moves even when we are hostile to him. He moves into our hearts, into our lives, and begins to breathe new life and vitality and even love for him. The Bible over and over again says that sin is so bad that your and my hearts are so bad that the only way we can be saved is if God does all of it. And let's be honest, on our best days, on our worst days, that's true, right? Like, on our, at our best, we are still a person who is desperately wicked. We're still a person who, at the end of the day, when we're falling asleep, is trying to figure out how to use other people for our good. At the end of the day, when we lay our heads down, we're still trying to say, how can I get mine, even if it means I have to stomp on someone else? That's the state of our hearts without God. And if that's true, then we desperately need God to intervene on our behalf because we would never, ever move towards him. The Bible says that even faith, even faith which saves us is a gift of God. We don't even have the capacity in our own hearts as broken as they are, to dwell up the, the power or the ability to believe in God, that we need God to give us the ability to then believe and be saved. That's how broken we are. That God gives us spiritual life, which we call regeneration, and then gives us the ability to believe in Jesus. Now, if this is true, this is where it starts to get beautiful. If this is true, then this means that salvation is by grace alone. That's what we mean over and over again when I say that week in, week out, that salvation is by grace alone, that it's God's work, that when we are saved from sin, it is only, exclusively, solely because God has moved and worked and loves us. The, th- the, the, the fancy theological word for this is monergism. Monergism. Now, it, it's, you think about what that word means, mono and then nergism. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so mono means single or one. And then uh, you get here the uh, ergon, which is the Greek word for movement or energy, uh, something like that. So one mover. That God alone is the force that moves and directs and saves us. That we are saved by God alone. And this is so, I mean, you can, y'all, if you, if, this is all over Scripture. All over Scripture. That God is the one who moves and plans and accomplishes our salvation. And if he's the one who does it from A to Z, then that means it is a gift of his grace from A to Z. From A to Z, it is a gift from God, which means it's grace. That's what it is. A grace is a free gift. He says, you don't deserve this, and I'm going to give it to you. Now, some of you would be like, well, then how is human responsibility in there? If, you know, are we not just drones? Are we not just robots? Jonathan, what the heck? Does this mean that I have no choice in the matter? Does this mean that I'm just some sort of pawn on God's cruel chessboard? Well, no, absolutely not. And that's clear. We've seen it in this text already. That already a couple of times in here we see that he says, whoever believes in me will never thirst. Over and over again, he talks about, and whoever comes to me, in verse 37, I will never cast out. And he, over and over throughout the book of John, Jesus criticizes and castigates his followers and the people for failing to believe in him. He says, you have a role to play in this. You, have to, you must believe in who I am. And if he's going to criticize them for that, then there must be somehow the ability or the capacity or the responsibility to believe. That we as humans have the ability to trust and believe in Jesus. 
If it's something that Jesus would command us to do, then there must be the ability to do it. That, the, that we are called, you are called, to respond to Jesus in either belief or disbelief. And that's true today. Jesus tells the Jews, you either believe in me or you don't. And if that was true then with who Jesus was and Jesus hasn't changed, then that's true today. We are called to respond. Do I believe in Jesus? Do I not? Now, some of us hate that. We're like, how can divine sovereignty and human choice exist at the same time? That doesn't make any sense. Well, there's, there is a good answer to that. It's, it's an okay answer. It's not a great answer. But I definitely don't have time for it now. Come talk to me if you're really frustrated about that, and we can, we can grab coffee. But here's the thing. The Bible talks about both God's total sovereignty and control and salvation and our responsibility at the same time and feels no need for that tension. It feels no need for that tension, that, that God is totally sovereign and we must respond in faith. So the first thing I want us to see from what we've talked about is that God is in control of our salvation. Second, that he calls us to responsibility. And thirst, here's the, third, here's the part. Let's not miss the force for the trees. The reason why all of this is in operation is because God loves us. The reason why God does all of this is because God loves us. Don't lose sight of the, of the, of the point of election, uh, of predestination in the weeds of it. That the reason why God predestines us is because he knows the depth and death of our spiritual state and says, I'm not going to leave them in that, but I'm going to invade into this world. I'm going to invade into your and my life, and I'm going to work redeemingly, lovingly. I'm going to work faith in this person because I want to spend eternity with that person. You know, that's what God says when he predestines someone. He's saying, I want to spend eternity with that person. Why would he do that? Because he loves them. Because he loves us. Because he loves you. Listen to how the rest of the Bible describes this. In this, the love of God was shown that God sent his only son into, wor- into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but God loved us and sent his son to be the punishment for sin. For God so loved the world that is you and me, that he gave his own son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Over and over and over again, the Bible shows that God moves and invades our world because he loves us. He loves you. He loves you. He loves me. Predestination often gets this caricature as a harsh or cruel doctrine. Listen, you're free to think that. You're free to think that. But I think if you do that, you are flagrantly disagreeing with what the Bible has to say about God and what motivates him. God is driven by his pursuing, insatiable, untouchable, pursuing love for you and for me. So much so that he would move heaven and earth to rescue you, to love you, to save you, to spend eternity with you, despite your sin, despite my sin. John says the energy which motivates predestination is God's pursuing love for me and for you. Now, there's so much more to be said on this, but I'll just try to wrap it up. For, uh, 
for the sake of time. If this is true, um, how does this change how we work? Well, first of all, if I've touched a nerve with you, if you're mad at me, please come talk to me, like I said at the beginning. <laughs> if you're confused, just, just like, hey, I don't understand this. Can we talk about it? And I'd love to get together with you and listen to you, and uh, we can talk about it. Um, but if this is true, why does it matter? Well, two ways. First, there's a call to trust in this. There's a call to believe. Some of you aren't Christians, and that's great. We're really glad you're here, like really glad you're here. We want you to keep coming, keep asking questions, keep exploring. And this text asks you to think long and hard about your spiritual life, not just about your tests. Those are good. God calls you to think about your tests. But there's text also, Christianity also calls you to think long and hard about your spiritual life. Don't be like the Jews who see God's miracles, sees Jesus' miracles, and yet don't believe. See Jesus' love for you and the death for your sins and trust in him. Eat the spiritual bread that he offers to you. There's a call to trust in this. Second, there's an assurance that all of us need. There's an assurance that all of us need. If God saves us and we don't save ourselves, then we can't unsave ourselves. We can't unsave ourselves. And this is, what's, this is what the doctrine of predestination means. It means that nothing, not one thing, nothing in this world can impede God's love for you. Because nothing you do can compel his love. Which means that for the Christian, you can sit back and rest and relax in the total assurance that it is God who started your salvation and God who will finish it and you can't mess it up anywhere in between there. You cannot mess it up. Three times in this text, verse 39, verse 40, and verse 44 says, I will raise him or her on the last day. The doctrine of predestination gives Christians total confidence that you and I will spend eternity with Jesus, that Christians will be raised from the dead. And look, y'all, here's the reality. We live in a world that denies anything but what's physical. But the reality is there is a world that lives after this one and there is a question it is spiritual real eternal life and Jesus says believe in me and spend eternity with me in heaven in glorious heaven and if you believe in me you will be raised there's no questions because God started it and God will finish it which is great news for you and me who mess up every day and we think man I blew it this time God can't possibly still love me because I did blank insert blank. The doctrine of predestination says you can't sin your way out of God's love. The doctrine of predestination means you can't fail your way out of God's love. And that is good news for you and for me. I want to drive this home a little bit sharper. I, haven't, I don't do this often, but I'm going, to, I'm going to sharpen the point. Some of you come from a Roman Catholic tradition. And some of you know that if you went through catechism that you can Sin your way out of God's love. That if you commit a mortal sin and fail to go to confession, you are not saved anymore. That is not what the Bible says. <laughs> that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus starts our salvation, that Jesus ends it, and that we have nothing to do in the middle except trust in him. That you cannot sin your way out of God's love. Why? Because of predestination. If God saves us, you can't unsave yourself. And some of you aren't Catholic. And you still find ways every week to say, man, I blew it. How can God love me because of I did X this week? Well, he does. 
Not because of anything you do, but because, of, because he loves you, just because he loves you. So that you can rest, you can be assured this week that even in the midst of your brokenness, God loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. That's true, y'all. That's what scripture says. That is the good news of Christianity. That's what makes Christianity unlike any other religion in the entire world, that God loves you because he loves you, not because God loves you if you follow his rules. God loves you because he loves you. And he does everything he needs that needs to be done to love you. Rest in his love this week. That when you find that you failed your standards, God's standards, your professor's standards, your parents' standards, your boyfriend's standards, none of it matters because God loves you. That's good news. That's the news that you and I need in our world. For those of you who are Christians, trust in Jesus. You can say, yes, I bring nothing but my sin, but I trust in Jesus and, I will, and Jesus will never cast me out. No sin, no spiritual force, no amount of evil. As Paul says, nothing will separate you from God's love. That's what's on offer in Christianity. Let that challenge you. Let that assure you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thanks for this time that we can look at your text once again, your word once again that you do love us. You love us because you love us. And that you move towards us in the person and the work of Jesus. Man, some of us have never heard that before. Some of us have heard it for the thousandth time. Lord, we all need to hear it again and again and again. So show us through the various ways that you have that you love us, that you love us, that you love us. And help us to be transformed by that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.